Welcome, and this is the Valley View Friends Church Sunday Morning Podcast. This is Pastor Josh, and I want to thank you for joining me today. I am so glad that you are listening in. At Valley View Friends Church, we as a church are learning how to live as God's people concerned with reaching and restoring hearts and homes with Jesus. If you want to learn more about our church, Look up us look us up on our website at valleyviewfriendschurch.org. Please subscribe to always get the next podcast. Well, my goodness, we are now one week after Easter, and it seems like spring has finally, finally decided to wake up. I was glad for the break in the rain this week and that the weather finally warmed up outside, and I just really enjoyed that the last few days, especially here. Uh, I'm recording on a Saturday, and it's uh, over 80 degrees outside. It's wonderful. My wife, Betsy, really loves springtime, and one of the reasons that she loves it is she feels that all of creation is crying out a hallelujah over the resurrection, because all around us has been bare branches and brown grass and tired flower beds, and they are now coming back to life. And this is something, uh, it's been happening for a little while now, but especially this week, as everything has exploded with new life, as though to say, There isn't death here. There is life. And Christ is not dead. He is alive. There is resurrection. Everything has changed now. We need that message and the hallelujah that spring brings to us. Sigmund Freud tells the story of a three-year-old boy crying in a dark room of a home that he was visiting one evening. Auntie, the boy cried, talk to me. I'm frightened because it's so dark. And his aunt answered him from another room. What good would that do? You can't see me. That doesn't matter, replied the child. When you talk, it gets light. This child was not afraid of the dark, but the absence of someone he loved. What he needed to feel to feel secure was presence. And we all need the same. Knowing that presence, the presence of God, is the ground of this basic sense of safety for all of us. Sometimes life can seem anything but abundant, anything but vibrant. Life can be frustrating, it can be scary, it can be lonely, it can be uncertain at times. You find yourself stuck in a grief so deep you can hardly breathe, you're faced with a problem that seems unsolvable, sometimes the unending struggle to just get by with day-to-day living is enough to overwhelm the best of us. Life is challenging, but it does not have to be an endless trudge through struggle. The hardship of life can be faced when you know that you're not alone. And so today I want you to know that you can have life that is full and satisfying. It comes from grabbing a hold of Jesus and putting your faith, your belief in him. Let's look together at the story of Thomas, a disciple who is in crisis. He cannot comprehend the death of Jesus, let alone the resurrection of Jesus. Thomas may doubt, but he faces those doubts down. He wrestles with them, and it results in a mighty faith. And we need to see that. And if you want a more satisfying life, if you want life to the fullest, life that is real, you need to face your struggles head on in Christ. You need to take on those struggles in Christ. You need to be honest about your struggles 
to Christ and face them with courage that comes from Christ. When you do this, you will find that Jesus is big enough to handle whatever you are wrestling with in life, and this will lead to a vibrant life. It doesn't mean a life without struggle or a life without a hardship, but life that is real and of substance and healthy and good and vibrant. Let's read the text in the Gospel of John, chapter 20, verses 24 through 29. Now, as it begins in verse 24, Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands? Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Stop doubting and believe. And Jesus said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. This story gives Thomas the nickname Doubting Thomas. Even Jesus says, Stop doubting and believe. And so Thomas is forever known as the Doubting Disciple. And I think... He's given a reputation he doesn't entirely deserve. I mean, I'm not going to say that Jesus wasn't right about Thomas's doubts, but I think there's more going on in this story. The story occurs uh, one week after Easter, as it tells us. And maybe that's why Thomas is called the doubter. He's lagging behind the other disciples. They've encountered the risen Jesus. They believe, and they're trying to get Jesus to, or, uh, Thomas to believe, and he just can't get it. But let's remember, on that first Easter, that Easter Sunday, all of the followers of Jesus were struggling. All of them couldn't figure out what was going on. All of them were stricken with grief. All of them had no idea what to do. The end of the Gospel of Mark clues us into that struggle and the disciples that the disciples are having. It says there in Mark chapter 16, verse 14, it says, Later, Jesus appeared to the eleven as they were eating, and he rebuked them for their lack of faith and their stubborn refusal to believe those who had seen him after he had risen. The Gospel of Luke uh, tells us that the disciples think that Jesus is a ghost. It says there in Luke chapter 24, verses 36 through 37, it says, While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they had they saw a ghost. So, I mean, the disciples, they were doubting. They were struggling. What Thomas was experiencing wasn't unique to him. And yet, <laughs> he's called the doubter. It's funny. All of the followers of Jesus struggle to believe in what's happening. But then especially the 12 disciples well, 11 disciples, the ones closest to Jesus, they were struggling to believe what's happening. But Thomas is the one singled out and called Doubting Thomas. I don't know that that's really fair. I really think he should be called Believing Thomas, because that's where he ends up in the story. Or better yet, Declaring Thomas, because he makes a bold declaration about who Jesus is. And we'll get into that in a few moments. 
But John chapter 20, verses 20 through 29, leads us through Thomas's journey, through a struggle of faith to a bold proclamation of belief. Thomas was struggling, and let's be clear that all the disciples were struggling. Some were further ahead of Thomas in figuring out what was going on, and some were behind him. I think Peter, you know, if you continue through the Gospel of John, Peter still needs to encounter the forgiveness of Jesus and the restoration from Jesus. Uh, So Peter still has more of his journey to go. But Thomas is struggling. He's facing doubt, and that's where we are today. And he's wrestling with some thieves, in his life. And these thieves are trying to steal and rob him of life and vibrancy and joy. And those thieves that I can see, because there are a lot of the thieves of life, but the three that I see are doubt, of question, and grief. I know there are more thieves of life than just those three things, but these are the ones I can see in Thomas. And It's most important for us to realize that there are thieves of life in every person's life. This is normal. This is to be expected. The problem is when you and I let these thieves get away with theft, you cannot let and you cannot invite them to live in you. When you do, they will steal the vibrancy from your life. So I just want to mention those three life thieves real quickly that I see in the text. That first one, as we've already mentioned, it's doubt. Everybody has doubts and doubt can be very healthy, but it has some limits. But in case you're wondering, here's a thought on the healthy side of doubt. Here's some words from Timothy Keller. He says, a faith without some doubts is like a human body with no antibodies in it. People who blithely go through life too busy or indifferent to ask the hard questions about why they believe, as they do, will find themselves defenseless against either the experience of tragedy or the probing questions of a smart skeptic. A person's faith can collapse almost overnight if she, he or she failed over the years to listen patiently to their own doubts, which should be only discarded after long reflection." So he says that doubt can serve as an antibody to the troubles and the skeptics of life. Paul Tillich says this, Doubt isn't the opposite of faith. It is an element of faith. Yeah, to believe in what you can't see, well, it requires a little bit of doubt to overcome, doesn't it? So everyone has doubts, but it's what we do with these doubts that matters. We can't let doubt move in. We can't let doubt linger forever. It's dangerous to live with doubt. Doubt means we put our trust in something or someone else. You might trust your fear more than you do reality. And that's the thing. If you doubt something, that means you're starting to trust something else. Here's an example. I'm this way with heights. You're going to find out, apparently Pastor Josh is afraid of a lot of things. I don't like roller coasters. Those things have heights to them. Uh, But I don't like the loss of control I feel on a roller coaster. I don't like caves. I also don't uh, like heights. Uh, And one of the classic examples for me is a zip line. You know, those lines that they'll suspend between trees or or, uh, faces of rock that you clip on a pulley on it and you put it up that rope on a harness on you and you can slide along that line to the other side. I don't like those. 
You can tell me all day long how strong that zip line is, how strong the trees are that it's attached to, how strong the rock is that it's anchored into. You can tell me that it'll hold me all day long. You can show me, but I would rather trust the solid ground than the strength of a zip line. And so when I doubt the zip line, I trust the ground instead. And when we doubt God, we run the risk of trusting something or someone else instead, and that is dangerous. So be careful. Doubt is important, but when you have doubt and you entertain it too long, you put your trust where it shouldn't go. And then doubt left too long. I've been mentioning that several times here. If you leave doubt too long, it will eat away at you. And here's an example I read about, an illustration I found. It talks about this little sea creature called the whelk. The whelk is a little ocean creature that can ruin an oyster's day. The whelk has an appendage that works like a corkscrew with which it can bore a tiny hole in the top of an oyster's shell. And then through this very small hole, the whelk can devour the entire oyster. It simply sucks it out little by little until the oyster is is gone. And a little doubt can do this to a person as well. It's just a small thing. It's not a big deal. That little doubt, oh, we shouldn't worry about that. And it's a hole that when you let it live in you, it can suck the life away from you. For many of us, we leave our doubts unspoken. That's when we let them move in. As though as long as we don't say them aloud, they're not real or something like that. As long as we don't say them aloud, we can pretend that they're not there, that the doubt isn't left to fester. I can appreciate that Thomas is forthright in his doubt. He names it. It's a thief to life, and he faces it. Questions, especially unanswered questions, they can be a thief to life. Thomas is a man of questions. You may not be able to hear uh, or find a question mark in today's scripture passage, but I can hear them rolling out of Thomas. The disciples are saying, yeah, we saw the risen Jesus. He's alive. And I can hear Thomas going, really? Jesus is alive? How do you know? Not unless I touch the nail marks in his hands and touch the wound in his side will I be able to answer the question of how can Jesus, how can he really be alive after the crucifixion? He's a man of questions. We don't read them in our text today. I guarantee you they were there. I guarantee you everybody was asking questions. How can this be? But I'm glad that Thomas is willing to wrestle with questions. When he does not understand something, he just asks. He doesn't just try to believe without asking why. He searches. He wants to know. And there's a place in Scripture where we do get to find out a little bit about Thomas. Uh, He comes in and he asks a question. John 14, verses 4 and 5, Jesus is speaking about uh, going ahead of the disciples. And Jesus says, you know the way to the place that I am going. And then Thomas speaks up and said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. So how can we know the way? I'm so glad that Thomas asked that question. He, He realized he didn't know. 
He wasn't just going to sit there and go, I'm going to act like I know because, you know what, I don't want to look foolish. He asked. And because Thomas was unafraid to ask the question, the result is we get a famous response from Jesus. There, it's there in verse 6, John 14, 6, famous passage of scripture. It's quoted all the time. It says that Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If Thomas hadn't asked, we might not have had that statement from Jesus. But it's funny. So many of us have questions in life, things we don't understand. And for some reason, it's like we're unwilling to ask God. I, I wonder if people are, are unwilling to ask God because they're afraid that they won't get an answer that they like. Or, you know, I think a lot of people don't want to ask God because they might not get an answer at all. And I can't guarantee you that God will answer your questions like he answered Thomas. But the unanswered questions, ones that you let remain silent and dormant, they will rob you. It's important to speak those questions to Jesus, to get them out. Do not let your questions live like a knot in your stomach. Even if the question is one that you're a little ashamed to ask, you're afraid that you'll be thought less of because you ask it, ask the question. Get it out before God. Don't let that thief live in your life. That third life thief that I see in this passage is grief. You know, this rarely gets attention when we talk about doubting Thomas. But Thomas is wrestling with grief. He has to be. He left everything to follow Jesus. And he just witnessed the death of Jesus and the death of everything Thomas had pinned his hopes on. He is a man stricken with grief. All the disciples had to be after the crucifixion. William Barclay suggests, he even goes so far as to suggest that Thomas is the sort of person that needs to process grief alone, because there are people that are like that. When they are grieving, they just need to pull off by themselves, process. And Barclay supposes that this is why Thomas is not with the other disciples on Easter, when Jesus shows up to first the first time to tell them that he is alive. Now, I don't know if that's true. But I think it's important to know that grief is present in Thomas's story. And grief can be a thief to life if you let it live in you in an unhealthy way. You cannot read this story of Thomas without seeing that he is a man chained to grief and changed by grief. He is caught in the dark. He's caught in that dark tunnel of numbness and pain. And then his friends say, hey, wait. You don't have to worry. Jesus is alive. And in his grief, Thomas says, no way. I won't believe until, until I touch the living Jesus and his wounds. Grief is deep. It's natural. And as important as it is, grief unmanaged and unsurrendered to God can be very debilitating. You know, you also can grieve, grieve more than the loss of a loved one. You can grieve the loss of a relationship. You can grieve betrayal. The loss of a dream or just that you have a dream that's unachieved and you've decided, you know what, that's never going to come to be. I won't tell you to pretend your grief away. And I won't tell you that it shouldn't hurt. 
And I won't tell you to just get over your grief. But it needs to be faced and faced in a healthy way. Because when you don't, it becomes a thief to life. Woodrow Kroll says this, We rejoice in spite of our grief, not in place of it. The only way you can do this well and gain vibrant life is to bring your grief to Jesus. So I'd invite you to do that. Now, we have been talking about Thomas a little bit, but I think we need to focus in on his character a little bit. Because I think we need to be like Thomas. For all of his doubt, he faces into his struggles and he encounters the living Christ. We don't actually know all that much about Thomas. Um, We know that his name means twin. It means that both in Aramaic, which is Thomas, and in Greek, which is Didymus. Both of those words mean twin. We're we're never told if he is a twin or who his twin is. He's some sort of mystery twin. And he's not mentioned very much in Scripture. He's listed as part of the 12 disciples. Whenever you read in a gospel, Jesus listing the 12 disciples, Thomas is always mentioned. And then he has a few mentions in the Gospel of John, one of which we covered when he's asking Jesus uh, the way that he was going, which we don't know the way you're going, Jesus. And we get that famous response from Jesus, I am the way and the truth and the life. And then there's one other passage that we'll look at in a moment. We're not ready to go there yet. But very little is really known about Thomas, especially after Uh, what the Bible tells us. Uh, Tradition says that Thomas became a missionary to Iran and India. Uh, We don't know that for sure. It's a pretty good guess. There are churches in both of those nations uh, that seem to have a heritage, a history that goes back to Thomas. Uh, But beyond that, Thomas's doubting seems to be his shining moment. That's what we really know about him. And so there are a few things that you and I can learn from Thomas in the story we read today. The first one is he is honest. He's very blunt. When Thomas does not know something, he says so. And when he does not believe something, he says so. Thomas does not hide his feelings from himself, from others, or from God. This sort of honesty is refreshing and it's important. You know, I mentioned it a little bit when we talked about the questions, because Thomas just, he just gets his doubt and his questions out there. He, he doesn't hide them. He doesn't try to pretend they don't exist. He faces them down. He's honest about what he doesn't know and what he doesn't believe. You do no one a favor when you are unwilling to say what is bothering you or what you're struggling with. No one can help you if you won't say, if you won't be honest. You cannot grow until you say the honest truth about the situation you are in. I think this is why confession is so powerful. Confessing sin, confessing fears, confessing needs, saying them aloud prevents you from hiding them away and not dealing with them. And so this honesty of Thomas is something we need to imitate. Thomas also shows courage. He has a lot of courage to tell all the other disciples that he thinks they don't know what they're talking about. They're they're saying, Jesus is alive. We've seen him. But he says, no way. Until I see him, till I touch the wounds in his hands and put my hand in his side, I'm not going to believe. He doesn't keep quiet. He doesn't hide. He shows courage. And that's important, even when it's courage kind of just saying, I don't get this yet. Gary Emerald says this, silence is evil's closest ally. 
I think that happens with courage as well. Instead of stepping out in faith or saying, this is, I got to face this, we get quiet about it. Courage is needed to face the struggles you have in life for no other reason than to give you the ability to call out to Jesus and say, I need you. Something else about Thomas, I mean, he's, he's honest, he, he has courage. And aside from uh, being honest, I think this is a little different. He declares the truth. He's a declarer. I'm not sure how to articulate this other than when Thomas encounters Jesus, risen, alive, and is invited to touch the wounds. And I want to point out, nothing actually tells us that Thomas actually took up Jesus's offer and touched the wounds. He may have, he might not have. But after Jesus is, or Thomas is standing there before Jesus, Thomas decides and then believes without exception. He demands nothing else from Jesus. He doesn't say, I'll believe in the Messiah that I want. Thomas sees who Jesus is and he believes and he declares not the Jesus he wants. You're back, Jesus. This is going to be great. We can do all these things that we thought we were going to do. He declares who Jesus is and he makes a powerful statement. He says, my God and my Lord. This is profound. It's a statement of truth and submission. Thomas is saying, you are my God and Lord. So Thomas is submitting, you're mine, my Lord, but also say my God. That's very profound. No one else in the gospel of John has said that yet, to declare Jesus to be God. It's important that Thomas doesn't declare what he wants about Jesus. He declares what he has now found Jesus to be, who Jesus really is. There's a story about Thomas Jefferson's Bible. The great American statesman and and president Thomas Jefferson was a man of science who did not believe in miracles, but he really liked Jesus. Unfortunately, right next to Jesus' ethical teachings are stories about miracles, feeding 5,000 people with a sack lunch or walking on water, curing blindness. So Jefferson resolved this conflict in a very pragmatic way. He took a pair of scissors And he cut out all the miracle stories. He wanted to make his own Bible. So he cut out all the miracle stories. And he was left with just the teachings of Jesus. And he also snipped out some of those teachings that were a bit incredible to him. In the end, as James Bryan Smith writes, he says, Thomas Jefferson had just the Jesus that he wanted. That is quite the statement. Just the Jesus that he wanted. And that's not what Thomas in the Gospels is doing. He's declaring who Jesus is, not who he wants him to be. And we would do well to declare who Jesus is instead of who we want him to be. Last thing about the character of Thomas. He's very complete in his belief. There's nothing halfway about how he follows Jesus. To state that Jesus is God is most profound. Thomas is the first to do that. It's a very complete statement. It's total. To call him Lord means that Thomas is completely in submission to Jesus. He's all in. He will do whatever it takes. And this is a characteristic you can see earlier in the Gospel of John. In John chapter 11, there's a story about Jesus receiving word that Lazarus is sick. Jesus knows that Lazarus has died and he will raise him from the dead. But the disciples bring up the last time that Jesus was in the area where Lazarus is. 
the leaders of Israel tried to stone him to death. But Jesus is resolved to go back to Lazarus, and Thomas responds with these words. Sarah and John eleven sixteen. Then Thomas, also known as Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. Thomas is willing to say, if Jesus is going to go where people wanted to kill him, then we should go too and be resolved to be all in, even if it would kill us. This is not doubt, but a man who is completely devoted no matter the cost. The honesty, the courage, the declaration, and the complete devotion of Thomas transforms the doubts he has at the end of the gospel story. It transforms his questions, it transforms his grief, and his struggles into vibrant belief and life. And this can happen for you too, if you're willing to seek out Christ. And I want to talk about Jesus for a moment here. Because we can have all the honesty and courage, and we can say what the Bible really says about Jesus. We can have devotion, but Jesus is the one who makes the difference. And there are two things about Jesus I think you need to see in our story today. The first one is this, that Jesus has room, makes room for you and for me. I need Thomas's story. His story tells us that Jesus has room for the latecomers, for the doubters, for the ones struggling. Thomas wasn't there when Jesus first revealed himself to the disciples, and Jesus could have decided to hold this against Thomas. Why weren't you there? You of little faith. He could have declared that Thomas missed out too late. Instead, Jesus came specifically at a later time to meet with Thomas and invited Thomas to touch his hands and side. He made room for Thomas, and he was willing to meet with him where he was at, and Jesus is willing to meet with you where you are at, if you are willing to meet with him. But perhaps most importantly from this story is this, Jesus is big enough for all of your struggles. I am very guilty of believing my struggles are my problem, and my problem alone that somehow I've got to face them myself, deal with them myself, that I must clean up my own mess. I must rise above my struggles and conquer them on my own. I have a feeling I'm not the only one who thinks that way. And you know what? It's just simply not true. And humans also tend to feel their sin. Their struggles are too shameful. No one would love you if they really knew what you've done or thought. You know what? Simply not true. Grief, it's such a strange path that each one of us must walk. And you may feel its journey is something that only you can understand and bear the burden of. The story of Doubting Thomas shows us that Jesus is big enough for whatever struggle, for whatever fear, for whatever monster you face or sin you have done or grief that you bear. There's nothing in your life too big for Jesus to handle. Your struggle may seem huge, but Jesus' love for you is bigger. Your sin may seem dark, but the light of Christ is brighter. Your pain, your grief, whatever you're wrestling with, Jesus is big enough to shoulder that burden of yours. And he is big enough to be your strength and bring new life into your soul. So what should you and I do? We should be like Thomas, doubts and all. Just don't let your doubts move in and become your Lord. 
Be honest about your struggles. Face them with courage. Be willing to declare the truth of who Jesus is entirely and follow him completely. And this will lead to vibrant life. I want to close with a Mennonite prayer. I was looking, uh, I've been looking at uh, some prayers and reading prayers that others have written, and that may bother some, but I think there is value in looking at others' prayers. And I found a Mennonite prayer about doubt, and I want to share it with you and perhaps pray it uh, for myself and for you, and that you may find some blessing in it. It goes like this How strangely comforting, Lord that so many of your servants have doubted you. So, if I can't always see the sense of your word, if I do not always feel confident about my faith, if I wonder where your love is in the face of pain and death, I am not the first. A great company of saints and martyrs has felt this way before me. Now in your presence they see face to face and know as they are known. Teach me like them not so much to fear doubt, as to see it as a sign of the mystery of life and a door to discovery. That's a great prayer, and I pray this in Jesus' name for myself and for all of you who are listening. In Jesus' name, amen. Go with Jesus.